For this week's episode, I am in the company of voice scientist Aaron Johnson to discuss laboratories, rats, the ageing larynx and wearable devices to detect vocal fatigue. Aaron has had a career as a professional classical singer and teacher and is now a researcher and speech-language pathologist specialising in vocal habilitation and rehabilitation. He is currently an associate professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. He is the co-director of the NYU Langon Voice Centre and leads the Johnson Research Lab. As a clinician, Aaron works alongside his physician colleagues to diagnose and treat voice disorders in performing artists. Right, here we go. Johnson, you are someone who has multidisciplinary training and experience as a researcher, a clinician, an educator and a performer. And this isn't to say that you don't have any other interests or hobbies, but what's the best sort of Christmas gift to give someone like yourself? <laughs> well, uh, I do have I do have hobbies. Um, I'm sort of a tech nerd, so you know I like computer things. I've of course gotten really into AI, so maybe a subscription to uh, ChatGPT would be good. Uh, I also do a little home brewing, so I like uh, and cooking. I like to. I think because of, of so much of my career is in academia and in, in music and performance, that my hobbies um, I very much like to be producing something tangible that people can enjoy and that I can enjoy. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty avid uh, home chef and, and home brewer. So anything related to those lines would be good. Oh, nice. What's your dish? What's your go-to? Oh, I just like trying new things all the time. I, I just hosted Thanksgiving here in the, in the States and had 17 people and cooked two different 16-pound turkeys, one in the smoker. So that's fun. I like to to smoke meats uh, out in the backyard and in my smoker and uh, you know, try different dishes. So um, yeah, I'm always looking for a new culinary challenge. Oh, nice. So you're not expecting your friends or family to kind of chip in for a Vegas nerve or something that you can hang on your wall? I don't think so. No. <laughs> we'll stick with the cooking. <laughs> although although I do, I, I could just reach over here. What are you going to pull out? A bit well, it was my it was my birthday recently, and my kids uh, did get me a stuffed larynx. So, oh, that's very cute. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you are on the faculty of New York University Grossman School of Medicine, and you lead the Johnson Lab, which runs alongside the NYU Langon Voice Center. Now, I'm keen to know what was your relationship like with the sciences in your earlier years at school. Well, um, when I was in high school, before I went to college, I decided pretty early on that I wanted to go into music. I wanted to be a performer. Um, I, I took all the sciences. I always enjoyed science, but um, I actually, because of sort of a scheduling situation, uh, skipped biology. I, I never have taken a biology class officially, uh, despite now doing quite a bit of uh, pretty intense basic science work in biology. Um, so it wasn't really, in fact, in my, my undergraduate work as a, as a vocal performance major, I took a continental shift in seafloor spreading. That was my one science class, which again has very little to do with, with what I have now in terms of science. So when I, when I switched into, um, into the, the health and science of the voice about, uh, about almost 20 years ago, um, I had a lot of catching up to do, certainly. So I took a lot of prerequisites. Um, and then really most of my learning was hands-on. Once I started doing my PhD work and working at University of Wisconsin-Madison, I was, I was just, it was in a lab. I was 
working with uh, with an animal model and learning about how to do microscopy and understand nerves and neuromuscular junctions. And so it was it was a lot of just kind of on the job training, as it were. What sort of science does a singer really need to understand? Is it relevant for them or is it just for the teacher? That's a great question. I think that we have a long history, hundreds of years of singers doing quite well without having any knowledge whatsoever of the science of how to sing. And there are many singers today that are in that situation. They're they're quite excellent performers. So I think it would be, I think the evidence would be, as, as a scientist, I always am trying to look for evidence to support my positions. And so I think it'd be easy to find evidence to, to support the position that singers don't need to know any science whatsoever. Now, <laughs> I don't don't stop the recording there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I that said, I do think there's also plenty of evidence that shows that the more one understands how uh, the instrument works, how the body works, the 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 deeper the understanding that someone has of of how how this voice is produced the better chance they are then to be able to change the way they're producing it, to to change their quality of sound, to, to sing in different genres, understanding that, you know, the voice, the mechanism of the voice operates differently with, with different productions and changes over our, our, uh, our career, uh, how we are affected by allergies, asthma, illness, you know, all these things basically have a biological basis. So despite the evidence saying that many singers do quite well without understanding anything about the science, uh, my position would be that it can only enhance what uh, singers, how singers understand and therefore uh, use their voice. And I do think to your question that it is critical for the singing teacher to have a good understanding of the science not so that they can become scientists or teach science lessons in their singing lessons, but again, so they can understand how this thing works. Um, other instrumentalists, um, non, non-vocalists have the advantage of being able to dissect their instrument at any time and pull it apart and see how the, the pieces fit together and what's, what's moving and you know, experiment with different mouthpieces or different uh, materials or what have you. You know, we have this this biological, ever changing, somewhat mysterious internal instrument that we're trying to play, and uh, science can give us a great understanding of how this instrument is put together and and how it works. The more you've dug into the science, how have you noticed your voice change? Yeah, unfortunately, I kind of gave up my professional career right when I was getting into uh, the the science more heavily, although I would say that all through my teaching career, um, so for 10 years, I was a performer and a teacher of singing in the Chicago area. And throughout my, my, my teaching career, I always had an interest in how the voice worked, the mechanism of the voice. And I trace that back to my, my very first days of taking lessons as a high school student with a, a teacher in Minnesota, Nick Lenz, who's, who's passed away. And then my undergraduate teacher, Karen Brunson, who went on to be the president of Nats, uh, she really instilled in me a, a curiosity for understanding how how this thing works. So even though I, I wasn't really a scientist per se, I still always had sort of a mind for understanding how things worked. And I found that as I 
understood more about the, uh, particularly the mechanisms of, of breathing, of how the different muscles within the larynx work together and potentially worked against each other, uh, that my own singing became freer, more easy. Uh, it, it, it helped me tremendously to, to just understand, again, how things work within my voice. I know you said you had a lot of catching up to do on the biological side of things, but for singing teachers who just don't like science, who find it really quite a slog to get into, how can they get clued up on the voice science part of their role in a way that doesn't feel like they would want a career change completely? Yeah, I, I don't think that you need to become um, an expert in any one field. In fact, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in, in any one particular aspect of science. I think the reason that I've had the success that I've had and that I continue to to you know hit hit the the manuscripts and and continue to work is is curiosity. As I mentioned before, um, I'm just a really curious person, and I think that anybody who's trying to uh, or anybody who is a singing voice teacher or is trying to become a singing voice teacher, I I would expect that they're doing that because they're really interested in the voice, and voice science is is a very broad area. Uh, I wouldn't. I I can't recommend sort of a five to ten manuscript list of here's what you need to read in order to understand voice science. Right? We can talk about biology, acoustics, uh, basic physics, computer modeling. I mean, there's this, you know the list goes on and on of the different fields that are related to to voice that we kind of take under the umbrella of voice science. So my my advice would be to ask ask yourself what are you curious about? What questions do you have? Ultimately, that's what research is about. It's about asking and then ultimately trying to answer questions. Mm. So instead of saying, well, I'm supposed to learn or I need to learn, which I think is how a lot of people, their experience in school with science, you know, someone says, here's a textbook, you need to, you should learn this. And now you're being forced to learn something that you're not really necessarily curious about. You know, ask your question, say, what what don't I understand or, or what do I want to understand more deeply? And then follow those questions into the literature. And that's a good you know, entry point for uh, for reading the research and then asking your own questions and, and maybe contributing to research as well. What curiosities did you have that, that kind of made you move over from the performance side of things into the more rehabilitative and habilitative and medical side of voice? Yeah, a lot of factors. One of the ones that that sticks with me was when I was teaching uh, full time at a, a small college outside of Chicago. I, I taught in the community program, and had a um, uh, an o older woman who was a retired school teacher, who had always loved to sing but had never taken voice lessons. And she came into my studio and and uh, she expressed that she you know she wanted to to really work hard and uh, and. Uh, she brought some songs in that she'd always wanted to sing. And and at the time, I, I embarrassingly admit that I was kind of ageist. I, I didn't think that you know, she had sort of a, a stereotypical warble in her voice that you might think, and her pitch wasn't very strong. She couldn't sing very long phrases. And unfortunately, I, I, was, I was ageist, and I didn't think she would uh, progress that much. But boy, did, did she teach me you know, as much or more than, than I taught her. She worked so hard. She made such progress. Her pitch improved. The stability improved. 
we worked on um, Scarborough Fair was the first song we worked on. And, and she couldn't get through that first opening phrase at first. And within a couple months, she was learning to manage her breath and be able to sustain that phrase. So she really just was, was an inspiration to me and, and made me curious to say, wow, I, I really, I didn't expect her to make that kind of progress. And so my first inquiries when I was uh, working as a, a PhD student at University of Wisconsin-Madison was focused on aging and trying to understand, first of all, what, what happens with the voice as we get older? What sort of, why does the voice sound weaker? Is it really a weakness in the muscles? Is it a lack of coordination? Are there changes in the brain? There's, of course, the answer is a mix of everything, really. But more importantly, I was curious as a former singing teacher and, and then as a speech pathologist, what sort of behavioral interventions, what kind of training could we provide individuals to help them restore their voice or even better prevent this sort of uh, age-related changes, the, the weaknesses and the, the deficits that we oftentimes see as people get older? So how, how could I help as, a, as someone who trains voices to to prevent or, or restore those uh, the voices of older adults. I'd be really interested to know also, through your work as a speech pathologist, what sort of patterns did you see mostly from performers coming into clinic? What problems were they having more often? Most of the time, busy professional performers are doing a lot to make ends meet in addition to performing. So we commonly see people that um, that come in where they're, you know, and, and there's in New York, we get to see people that are that are doing full time, you know, Broadway shows, eight shows a week. They're still vocally busy, but they don't have side gigs. But, you know, that that's sort of the rarefied um, group of people. The, the The larger group of performers are performing a little bit, but then also working as a server or uh, working in a, an office or. Uh, and you know, doing something where they're using their voice quite a bit, unfortunately. Uh, performers, vocalists tend to be pretty vocal people and, and <laughs> outgoing people, so they tend to gravitate towards uh, you know other gigs that uh, that that are allow them to be social and to talk. So oftentimes we see performers coming in who are having problems because of how much they're talking, actually, not because of how much they're singing. And even people that are singing full time would be surprised, I think, if we measured their voice use, just how much they use their voice when speaking. And uh, by and large, performers have much more training and much more technique focused on their singing voice than on their speaking voice. Mm. And I, I even hesitate to kind of say speaking voice versus singing voice because it's just your voice. It's you're just doing different things with it. And there oftentimes is this... Uh, this dichotomy of where people think, well, I'm I'm using one sort of voice when I'm speaking and one when I'm singing. You know, I say every time you make a sound, whether it's singing, speaking, shouting, coughing, clearing your throat, your little vocal folds are vibrating. And not only are they vibrating, but they're colliding with each other. And it's those collisions, repeated collisions throughout the day that can number in the, the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of collisions. That's what causes problem that leads to what we call uh, phonotrauma, which is a kind of fancy name for something that that can hurt the the tissues that's traumatic for the tissues of phonation. So phonotraumatic issues like vocal fold nodules or polyps or even just sort of general edema and fatigue, um, those are oftentimes largely due to how people are using their voice when speaking, not not when they're performing. How can we help our singers then if they are somebody who has got a side gig, 
they have that for a reason to help support themselves financially to also assist in their dream job is it our role to be like can you find another job or is it our role to say hey get together with a speech pathologist or or, or to educate them about things like the Lombard effects like where do we sit as teachers in the category of helping somebody like that the singing teacher is really a critical member of the voice care team uh, because the singing voice teacher is in a position to help habilitate and to um, to help people avoid situations, uh, prevent situations where they end up with a voice problem and they need to come in and see the speech pathologist who's the rehabilitator. And so um, education is key. Um, I don't I wouldn't say that you need to, to tell them to get a different job. But you can certainly educate them about the uh, potential dangers or uh, risks, maybe risks is a better word, of using their voice uh, with, with a high uh, volume, with uh, using their voice for long periods of time without rest, and how that could affect their singing voice. Now, some people just sort of have cords of steel, right? They, they can just talk and belt and sing in the car, and they, there's no problems. Uh, you know, and some people are are, are much more delicate, and we, we don't really understand why that is. There's probably some underlying, you know, genetic biological differences, but we really we don't have any evidence to understand that. But but anecdotally, we certainly know that to be true. So it's not that you need to. I think every student, you know, give them a huge warning that oh, you better be careful. Um, but certainly, if a if a student's coming to you and saying, yeah, I'm I'm just kind of tired today. You know, I had my a waitress gig last night and and I'm just kind of fatigued. You say, well, are you, are you fatiguing all the time? Because you might want to, you know, be, be a little more cautious, a little more, um, you don't have to go on vocal rest, but be conservative and aware. Just helping people be mindful of how much they're using their voice and that even short breaks can be helpful. I mean, the body can, this is built to, to for the vocal folds to vibrate and to create sound. Um, so it's, it's not that we need to be absolutely quiet and never talk again but rather give yourself a, a chance to recover. And the, the a very common analogy or, or, or a phrase that's used is to talk about performers as vocal athletes. And I, I love that. I, I fully support that and use that all the time. It's a great analogy because then we can say, you know, look at um, say, uh, you know, a footballer and uh, they're, when they're off the field, are they running a marathon? <laughs> no, they're probably not. You know, they're taking it, they're taking a rest. They're not, sitting down in a wheelchair, but they're they're not pushing themselves off the field. They're really saving themselves for when it counts, when they're in training, when they need to be in performance. And the rest of the time, they're probably more aware of how they're using their their body so they're not fatiguing or hurting themselves outside of of when they're playing. So being aware, being being aware of the overall vocal load of how the how individuals are using their voice. And the singing teacher is is a really important uh, educator in that in that regard. Me and my husband often like to reminisce on TV shows we used to watch as kids and, and one of his that he mentions a lot is Dexter's Laboratory, which I think used to be on Cartoon Network or something. Now you lead a lab, which is pretty cool. So firstly, what's it like having a lab named after you? <laughs> I I just couldn't come up with a better lab, but that was sort of the default. That's that's what they do in the center. They they, they well, I'm as the principal investigator, the PI. Um, I'm I'm in charge of the lab. It's really like running a small business, and so the default is just to kind of use the the PI's last name. So, um, yeah, we we it's the the Johnson Lab, you can call it, or we we've come up with some different ideas. 
but it's yeah. it's awesome. I I love I love being in charge of a lab. I love having that autonomy, independence, and responsibility. Yeah, it, it, like I say, it really is like running a small business. I need to bring in funds to to uh, in order to to pay for the work that we do, to pay the salaries of the people I employ. So it's it's pretty high pressure business, uh, but you know, high pressure, high reward as well. Yeah. Well, I can just imagine other people coming with different names and you're like, no, no, we'll stick with the Johnson's lab. I like that one better. <laughs> yeah, voice exercise, aging, neuromuscular, it's all kind of, we've 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 toyed around with some different to different thoughts. <laughs> no, the, the Johnson lab, it has a have a has a ring to it, doesn't it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but what's your mission at the Johnson Lab? Well, really, really interested, sort of, as I was saying before, uh, my original uh, inspiration of, of understanding the aging voice, more broadly, we're interested in understanding the nature of vocal exercise, um, how behavioral training affects the neuromuscular mechanisms of the voice. Uh, more narrowly, we, we tend to focus on the effects of vocal exercise on the thyroretinoid muscle itself, which is the primary muscle inside of the vocal fold. It makes up the bulk of the vocal fold and helps with regulating tension and a little bit with adduction as well, closing the vocal folds. So there are, you know, when I say the muscles of voice, that could be almost any muscle in the body. Your whole body is involved with producing voice, but but uh, we we're very laryngocentric, as I like to say, as most of the voice world is. We like the larynx. It's our favorite organ, and uh, so we tend to focus our investigations on that that tiny little thyroretinoid muscle. And in 2013, you and a team did a study that was published, and there's a, there's a great article on that. I mean, I know I look and sound highly intelligent, Aaron, but just imagine for a minute that, that I'm not. <laughs> Can you really simplify what the study did, how it was carried out, and what was found? Sure, sure. So that study you're referring to was about 10 years ago. That was uh, the work that I did uh, as part of my dissertation. Uh, so it was the the very first uh, or one of the first studies that I that I did in the basic sciences under the mentorship of Nadine Connor, who's an investigator at University of Wisconsin-Madison, also in collaboration with Michelle Chucci, who also is an investigator at, at Madison. And um, Basically, when I was in uh, Nadine's lab, I was investigating how the tongue muscles responded to tongue exercise, and uh, she taught me to use an animal model, to use a rat model. And so we were taking uh, thirsty rats, and they were licking against a disc that provided a water reward when they pressed against it with a certain force. And that allowed us then to to model vocal, uh, sorry, laryngeal, or I keep saying that's I can't get away from it, lingual tongue <laughs> exercise, and I uh, I wanted to take that model down the airway to the larynx, and so uh, Michelle Chucci, who arrived at the same time I did, uh, she was a postdoc while I was a, a predoctoral fellow, um, she had this model of ultrasonic vocalization training. And so what uh, we did was we used that model, and I'll explain what that is. Um, so rats communicate with each other using ultrasonic vocalizations. Ultrasonic meaning higher than we can hear. So our hearing when we're young and healthy goes up to about 20,000 hertz, that frequency. Uh, rats, when they vocalize with each other and when they're expressing emotion of, of uh, happiness, of finding each other, for mating, uh, when they're playing as juveniles in rough and tumble play, 
they vocalize to each other around 50,000 hertz, so quite a bit higher than we can hear. Now, we think that rats squeak because when they are in fear or pain, they do indeed make audible squeaking vocalizations. But when they're just talking with each other, it's this ultrasonic vocalization. So um, we have this model where we pair male and female rats together and then separate them and then they vocalize and and when they vocalize we give them a little reward so either a a sip of water or a sugary treat and uh, that then just reinforces that behavior so it's a it's kind of a traditional uh, operant conditioning paradigm where you you know there's a behavior you reward the behavior and that behavior is done more frequently so that's how we train rats to increase how much they're vocalizing and by doing that, we can then increase over a period of, of weeks. We've done studies both four and eight weeks. The, the first study you referred to in 2013 was, a, was an eight-week study. And we can take young rats and old rats and train them like this and then look at both the, the behavior, look at the acoustic signal like we would with a human vocalization. We can look at uh, how loud or how quiet it is. We can look at how softer... Um, uh, so, so how, how soft or loud it is, how high or low it is in frequency, the complexity of the vocalization. And um, so after we train them, we look at that. But then the, the reason that we use the animal model so that we can look directly at the, uh, the vocal fold. So we take, the, um, uh, we, take, we take a look at the vocal fold itself. And we were looking at what's called the neuromuscular junction, which is the connection point between the, the nerves. So you're, when you want to move a muscle, your brain sends a signal down to your, your muscle. And the point at which that signal hits the muscle is the connection between the nerve and the muscle. So it's a junction, it's a neuromuscular junction. And when we exercise, when we go to the gym, the first kind of gains that we get are neural gains. So in the first month or so of lifting weights, you increase your strength, but you don't get much increase in the size of your muscles. What's happening is you're recruiting more of the nerves and increasing the um, the efficiency with which your muscle is being activated. And so we see changes at that neuromuscular junction before we see changes within the muscle itself. So that's why we were looking at the neuromuscular junction before we looked directly at the muscle. Um, and what we found was that in the old rats, what happens is those, those neuromuscular junctions tend to start, to start to break apart a little bit. They disperse. In the rats that received vocal training, those junctions were more tightly packed, which would suggest that there is better transmission of those neural signals. We subsequently looked then in, in, in future studies uh, at... Uh, the muscle itself, we looked at the muscle fiber size, we looked at the muscle fiber type that would give us some sense of how the muscle's contracting. And we found um, two more times, so a total of three times, an effect at the neuromuscular junction itself, this sort of clustering of the, of the junction. But we didn't find any changes within the muscle. And so altogether, the work that I've done with this model of, of training rats to vocalize and looking at the, at the muscle seemed to indicate that the vocal training is not strengthening the muscle per se. We're not bulking up the muscle, increasing muscle fiber size, but rather we're, we're changing the way the nerve interfaces with the muscle. And that's more consistent with what we would call an endurance kind of exercise, where we get this repeated cyclical contraction of the muscle. Um, so if we think about runners 
A marathon runner would be someone who's an endurance at athlete because they're working their muscles at a, a relatively low level for a long period of time. Whereas a sprinter would be more of a, a, a ballistic strength athlete. They're trying to increase the very fast, rapid uh, force that they can produce for a short period of time. So the vocal training seems to be a little bit more like an endurance kind of exercise, although we're continuing the work and looking directly at the muscle. So that was, that was a kind of a long answer, but wanted to set no, the stage for, for why we were doing that and how we were doing that and happy to take any follow-up yeah. questions on that. Yeah, I've got loads. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of using rats, there are other studies that we also see using uh, canine larynxes. Mm-hmm. Could this study still be done on on a canine larynx, and and how comparable are they to the human experience? Yeah, great question. So um, there's an old statistician, uh, George Box, and uh, he said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Okay. And that's something to remember in science, that when we read a scientific paper, there's always going to be limitations. There's always going to be aspects that don't apply, uh, but hopefully it's useful. So the rat is a useful model because we can train the rat to vocalize. Uh, the structure of the larynx, the, the muscles, the layer of the, the outer layers, all that is, is, is uh, very similar to to humans, they use the similar kinds of, of muscles to modulate their pitch as we do, their cricothyroid and thyroid muscle, even though it's an ultrasonic vocalization. So there are a lot of, a lot of good um, homologies, similarities between the rat larynx and uh, the human larynx. Uh, but but it's, it's imperfect, right? We're, we're, we're looking at different kinds of vocalizations and a different kind of uh, controlled environment. In terms of other animals, a lot of different animals, including canines, sheep, cows, pigs, you name it, um, each of those larynges tends to be used for certain types of studies that they have their own advantages, I should say. So depending on if you're looking at the layered structure, if you're looking at changes in frequency, um, sometimes it's just sort of accessibility of the of the animal model. Um, and I should say that 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 we have great respect. I know there are, there are many people that are, are completely against doing any sort of animal research, I, and, and I respect that position. Um, we take our work very serious, and we're very respectful of how we use animals. We, we only use animals for research that simply cannot be done in humans, and to ask questions that we think are really important and that will help drive the field forward. Um, so we're not just... Um, we're, we're we're not thoughtless. We're very thoughtful in how we how we use animals, and that's true of of all animal researchers. In fact, the animal research tends to be even more tightly regulated than human research. Um, so just and I, and I also try to use sort of the the lowest level, so to speak, as I can. I and that that's my own personal um, you know rat research is about as high up the the food chain, so to speak, as as I'm I'm comfortable going. Um, I don't know that I could, I would be comfortable doing dog research, but there are other people that, that, that do. And, uh, you know, as you get higher up into, uh, to different, different creatures, there's higher, tighter regulation and you try to use fewer and fewer numbers to really be conservative and, and respectful of, of, of the work. And in your study, part of what you've been looking at, as you mentioned before, is, is aging and how we can aid an, an aging singer. 
and the research uh, showed that through vocal exercise the symptoms or the experiences that an aging singer might have can be mitigated. We spoke with Joanne Bozeman on episode 102 of this podcast on the menopausal symptoms um, that we may encounter. What might an aging singer experience and when does that start to happen? Basically, how long have I got <laughs> until I see that in my own voice? <laughs> Set the timer. Um, well, it's, you know, like most things, it's variable. So I, I can't give you an exact date, but some things to look out for as, you know, the, the, the body or the voice is, is very much like the rest of the body. So we experience uh, what's called muscle atrophy. In fact, when we're uh, beginning our thirties, unfortunately, we start oh, to atrophy. I know. Well, I'm already there. <laughs> now that doesn't mean we can't exercise and improve our function. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually a really great role model in some ways, uh, in turn, when it comes to physical activity. Uh, if you look at him in his, you know, well into his seventies, and he's training every day and is, is still, you know, staying fit. Now, does he look like he did when he was, you know, eighteen, winning world bodybuilding championships? No, but uh, if he if he didn't train every day, he he would atrophy and he would look more like me eventually. But <laughs> so um, so muscle atrophy is one thing. But another thing that I think is isn't talked about as much or understood as much is some of the neurological changes. Mm. Uh, as much as I love the larynx and I tend to be sort of a peripheral guy of of really investigating the the biomechanical aspects of of the voice and the and the larynx, it all comes comes back to to the brain. Right? The brain is what is controlling everything. And so as we get older, our our processing speeds slow down a little bit. Our coordination uh, decreases. And so things like uh, like vocal fold tremors or wider vibrato, like I was talking earlier with my my previous student, you know, those become more commonplace. Um, you know, sl slower articulation, less precise articulation, uh, those can affect the way we're we're singing as well. But again, I, I don't want this to be too depressing of a talk. <laughs> the message <laughs> I'd like to 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 make sure everyone hears is that it's not an inevitable decline, but rather. Well, I guess it is, but but we can still <laughs> oh, do something about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can still training, continuing the training, and I think this is important for older singers to hear that that as we get older, um, you know, we we may have been successful in our profession for a very long time, and we may not have had singing lessons, or we maybe were a singing teacher and we've been teaching other people to sing. We think, well, I I know how to do this. Why would I take a voice lesson? But having someone outside of yourself listen to you, give you feedback, give you support. Um, it's, it, it's really invaluable and it's, it's something you can't do for yourself. So I would encourage singers at all ages to, to seek a singing teacher. Um, you know, even if it's, if it's sort of, uh, just as a check-in, if you're not comfortable studying every week or regularly, just get, you know, get some feedback from, from people outside of you. Um, especially as you get older, because your instrument is different than when you learned how to use it when you were, you know, 18, 20 years old. Uh, you're using a different instrument and you may need someone to help give you some advice, technique, tricks, tips in order to use that that different instrument. Yeah, definitely. And I say this to students that I work with, particularly for in, in institutions where there's there's almost like an expectation in their own minds that when they leave that institution, their voice is perfected. It, it, it's no longer 
um, in need of training, or at least it it should be able to do everything. Right. And I've I've been you know slowly encouraging them to to realize that this is just one part of the journey, and that we have this life cycle that the voice is going to respond to. And that actually that knowing that, even though that's a bit scary, can take the pressure off for the three years of study that actually you're not you're not leaving here to be perfect. You're leaning here. You're leaving here with a toolbox of, of skills. Um, so does that kind of just play into this the statement of use it or lose it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that 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 uh, that adage is is absolutely applicable to the voice. In fact, that's that's one thing we. We tell older adults who come to our clinic who are having voice problems, speaking or singing, um, that oftentimes what happens as we get older, if we if we retire, if uh, if a spouse passes away, you know, our kind of regular communication situations fade away. We're just not using our voice as much. We're not talking, and so finding ways to increase your voice use. So a lot of people will you know read the morning news and say, well, read that aloud, or if you're reading a book, read that aloud. Um, have a set of vocal exercises if you're a singer that you commit to every day. You know, do your do your vocal warm up, do your vocal exercises every day. Be consistent because I do think the the use it or lose it uh, absolutely applies to the voice. You mentioned earlier about endurance, and and part of the research that you've done is looking at the vocal exercises that can play a role in this mitigation. Does your research point towards a particular protocol of? these exercises are sort of higher in the priority list than others, or is it tr just training it? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a combination. So when we think about uh, exercise broadly, what we're trying to do is we're trying to increase the, the performance of our muscles. Um, we're trying to increase the strength and or endurance of our muscles. And so we can think about a lot of vocal exercises um, actually have nothing to do with strength and endurance. And that's fine because we're not just trying to lift a weight with one muscle. We're trying to coordinate this incredibly complex system, these you know three subsystems of respiration, phonation, articulation, and resonance, you know with the with the the neurological system coordinating and activating them all. So it's it's a very complex sensory motor uh, activity to to use our voice, much less to sing. So that said, a lot of the the training exercises we do are for coordination uh, and learning how to be efficient with our voice use. Um, so when it comes to really thinking about exercise as exercise, increasing strength and endurance, what the literature has shown is that exercises that focus on some sort of maximum function are effective at improving the the strength and endurance. What I mean by that, if we think about sort of the the fundamental things we can do with our voice. We can get loud, we can get soft, we can get high, we can get loud, and we can change quality. And so doing exercises that work on vocal range, like pitch glides, trying to go you know, up to your, your upper range, not straining and, and, and pushing, but you know, going, going outside of what sort of is your normal, typical speaking range is one kind of exercise. And you can do that in lots of different ways. Um, doing things where you're sustaining sounds for very long times. So trying to do a, a maximum phonation task. Uh, so something like the vocal function exercises have been studied in older adults to, and have been shown to be helpful because they do just that. They focus on maximum endurance and maximum pitch. 
What they don't do is they don't focus, that particular protocol doesn't focus on maximum loudness. Other protocols like the Lee Silverman voice training that was developed for individuals with Parkinson's disease, um, the Forte exercises by Aaron Ziegler and Edie Happner that were designed based off of the LSVT protocol that helps people increase their loudness. Um, again, kind of above what is, is typical. Again, with any exercise, what we need to do is, is push our muscle beyond what it typically does. That's how we, we build that strength and endurance. And the same is true with the voice. Now, the complexity with the voice is that, especially if we're being loud, we don't want to push it in a way that is uh, too strenuous or potentially damages the, the tissues. Because again, we're not just flexing a muscle, we're getting two pieces of tissue to collide with each other. So we want to be conscious and aware that we're not, we're not trying to do anything that that hurts. Uh, we, we mentioned use it or lose it. One, another sort of phrase you might hear in the gym is no pain, no gain. That does not apply to the voice. If you are singing, vocalizing, and it hurts, stop. That is, that is, do not push through, do not, yeah, no pain, no gain does not apply to the voice. Oh, oh. Announcement. Listeners, if you've been thinking about joining the BAST community by taking one of our courses, but you just don't know which is the best option for you, then why not book a free call with our very own Kimberly George, who has all the answers. Head over to basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and click that big blue button to request your free Zoom chat. That's basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and you can find that link in our show notes too. Now, where were we? Oh, oh. I have a bit of a strange question and I can't believe I'm about to ask you this, <laughs> but it's <Okay>. fine. <laughs> um it's Christmas, right? The be one of the best Christmas films, I think, is The Holiday. And in the film, Cameron Diaz's character references an article she read about how, particularly for women, I think she, she says, that stress shrinks something in the body and causes people to look haggard. Now, where I'm going with this is we understand that the aging voice occurs as we get older. We know that stress has an impact vocally, but I just wondered whether anything else can impact the aging voice that isn't age related, i.e. stresses or other external factors. And also I'm kind of thinking about the gentleman who has reversed his biological age through certain strange eating habits, sleeping habits. Um, I can't remember his name, but he's been on uh, the Diary of a CEO recently. So does the voice age other than with a physical number that you are reaching each birthday? Oh, good. It wasn't a so shit question aging... then. <laughs> I shouldn't be embarrassed. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. Not at all. No, that was, that was an excellent question. So uh, in aging research more broadly, not just in the voice, um, one of the tricky things to do is to disentangle uh, aging from all these other factors, as you described. So uh, aging is a biological process that actually is not directly related to the passage of time. So our chronological age is actually a very poor way to measure our biological age. 
And we all can probably think of individuals that we know. I, I remember my my grandfathers when they were alive, they were about the same age. I remember in their uh, their late seventies, and and one of them could could had a hard time getting up out of his chair, and the other one could still beat me in a game of tennis. And they were the same chronological age, but because of other factors, other lifestyle factors, potentially other genetic factors, um, you know, they they were very different in their biological ages. So the the short answer to your question is yes, there are lots of external factors, lifestyle factors that affect our age, that, in, that affect our voice, that interact with the aging process to, to make it worse potentially. And, and in, in general, I think it's going back to what I said earlier, you know, the, you know, the body is your instrument. It's not just the larynx. So when you talk about the voice, you're really talking about your body. So anything that that you do or that happens to your body will affect your voice, whether that's stress, whether that is um, your diet, your sleep habits, um, you know, the the pollution in the air that you breathe, the your the general atmosphere that you live in. If you live in a, a busy city like I do in New York, or you're in a coastal retreat and relaxed every day. I mean, yeah, all, all those things absolutely affect your voice. And, and that, that can affect your voice in the short term where, you know, you, you, you breathe something and it irritates your throat and you, you have a coughing attack and it can affect your, your body over the long term as well. Um, so that, that's, that's a little bit of a broad generic answer, but, but I think it's important, particularly for young singers, young vocalists to really have that awareness that as they go through their life, that, Every decision they make about their their health and uh, their body will affect their voice. We spoke with one of your colleagues, Anna Flavia Zuim, who had undergone a study using a K-Pentax APM 3200 device. And this was to measure the vocal load in a group of male and female identifying performers singing a contemporary musical theatre piece. I think it was Wonderland. And the results determined that when converting the, the vocal fold vibratory cycles to distance, over three miles were being covered per day in this particular production. So as a, as a speech pathologist, as a vocal health advocate, as somebody who's been a performer and is a teacher, somebody who is really into the kind of technological stuff and devices as well, what do we need to help performers understand the actual vocal load they're going through, how we can measure that going forwards, and how we can help them to go through their life cycle more efficiently. Yeah, uh, so voice dosimetry is something I've been fascinated by for, for decades, and I was really excited when Ana Flavia was, was getting into the, the voice dosimetry world. She has, as you mentioned, the, uh, the, the K-Pentax APM, the Ambulatory Phonation Monitor. And what that does is it uses a little accelerometer, which is uh, uh, attached to the base of the neck and vibrates when the voice vibrates. And so it picks up the vibrations of the voice and then is able to measure the fundamental frequency, the intensity. Um, and there are some devices that are similar that actually can measure the voice quality as well, looking at the harmonics and some other aspects. So um, it's a technology that's been around for several decades. And the there have been a couple of commercial attempts, the APM being one of them. Unfortunately, there's there currently is not a voice dosimeter commercially available. 
Uh, the group up at uh, Mass General Hospital has done a lot of great work in this area, and they have a company that's spun off that's preparing a device. Uh, and recently, I've been very lucky to have a collaboration with, uh, with my alma mater, Northwestern University, and uh, John Rogers and Terry Brancaccio there, and I have been collaborating on a new device that uh, is wireless, that will pick up people's voices, that's discreet, uh, that, that again sits sort of right on the, the sternum. It can be worn under the shirt line. Uh, we did publish a paper on it last year and we're, we are at ongoing work and, and hopefully we'll maybe even be collaborating with Ana Flavia and some work soon. And um, what that will do is help people understand how much they're actually using their voice, again, by measuring the vibrations throughout the day. Most people, if you ask them, uh, how much they use their voice. You ask them to estimate the number of minutes or number of hours. Uh, they're pretty bad at it, actually. There's some studies that show that using dosimetry and, and self-estimation, that people are pretty far off of, of estimating how much they use their voice. Um, but one thing we don't understand is, is actually, is it how much in time? Is that the dose? So we're, we're measuring vocal dose in some different ways. You mentioned the distance dose, how far theoretically do the vocal folds travel? And it can be quite impressive distances, as you mentioned. Um, but we don't know. Is, is, it, is it the amount of time someone uses their voice? Is it the time compared with how much they rest their voice throughout the day? Is that important? Or the kind of the rest versus voice ratio? Um, is it the intensity, how loud they are? I mean, these are, these are things we just don't understand. We've got some theories and sort of we talk about it in the clinic about reducing voice use. But until we have a way to really gather lots of data from a lot of people and measure their voice outcomes, we're just we're not going to understand that. So that's something that I really hope that that uh, that I can help contribute to with this this new collaboration I have with with Northwestern and with the work that's uh, ongoing with these other um, centers that I've mentioned. Yeah. Do you see there ever being a time when we hand out these little devices to our singers to our institution performers and say wear them wear them every day and then measure them at the end of the week and that becomes part of their vocal health protocol in training i would love that yeah i i think i think it's possible i think that uh this this new technology that i mentioned with uh with dr john rogers he's he's a really quite accomplished bioengineer and has, has invented all sorts of uh, different wearable technologies and flexible electronics and I think that that we now have a technology that will be accessible, easy to use, and cheap enough um, that we I could see a day where that would happen. And I think that that kind of device we're we're ready for that as a society as well, uh, meaning that that we're we're tracking ourselves all the time, right? My yeah. my watch just beeped at me a few minutes ago, telling me to stand up. I'm going to miss my stand goal today. <laughs> Sorry. <But, about> <laughs> Right. So we wear watches. We we uh, we just kind of that that ever presence technology is 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 commonplace now, and we're tracking all sorts of different health and and movement metrics. So I think tracking our voice metrics that as a as a society we're we're sort of we're ready and we understand how that would be valuable now. Yeah. Lastly, Aaron, voices become really academic. How can we learn all of this stuff? follow our curiosities, consider it when we're in the studio, but also make sure we're being human, not to say that you're not human, <laughs> Aaron, but to allow Thank there you. to be <laughs> that kind of 
just human response to what's actually happening and to just kind of tell a story still. Sure, sure. Well, I, I said early on that that voice science that you know that singers can can be just fine not knowing anything about voice science. Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes people are reticent to get into voice science because they're afraid that it will replace what they've been doing mm -hmm. um, or that it will prove that that what they're doing was wrong or you know in in, in for me anyway, science, isn't about proving anything. It's not proving someone right or wrong. It's about understanding. Mm. So I don't think that that the science should um, or is meant to detract from the artistry of being a singer, of being a performer. Um, I mean, ultimately, that's that's the experience. Some people ask me, like, can you can you listen to singers without analyzing, you know, their formants in your head and without thinking yeah. about their muscles working? And and luckily I can. I, I can I when I I mean I I've living in New York now for about seven years. Um I I just still count myself fortunate that I'm able to go to, you know, a Broadway show virtually anytime I want. We 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 go pretty regularly. It's a it's a real treat for us, my 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 wife and I and my family, my kids and and when I go, I just love being in the audience and listening and enjoying the moment and hearing the story being told. And I'm not, I'm not picking apart, you know, their their technique and and thinking about their their thyroid muscle as they're <laughs> they're singing. Um, and I and I don't think so. I don't think science has to detract from that in any way. Again, it just it helps us understand. It helps us understand how we do this. And 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 we've been focusing a lot on biological science on acoustics, but there's the science of training. There's motor learning principles and understanding how do we effectively train people in you know, using cognitive science. So science is not just about, about the, the numbers of the of fundamental frequencies and whatnot, right? There's, there's a whole aspect of science that gets into the cognitive aspect. And that's one thing I'm excited about here in the States with the National Association of Teachers of Singing, they recently unveiled this science-informed um, pedagogy. There's a workshop and there's resources on the website that are available to everyone. And they include very strongly because of Lynn Helding, who does a lot of work in this area, uh, the cognitive sciences and understanding, you know, how do we, how do we train people? How do we teach people? How it's it's not just about telling them this is how the muscles work. In fact, that's a pretty pretty bad way to train people. Um, there, there are much more effective ways based in, in motor learning principles to train people. Aaron, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure to chat with you. I've, I've really Likewise. enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, Where thank you for the all... invitation. No, of course, well, we're always great to reach out and across the pond as well um, right. to, to, to get together and to network. So thank you so much. Where can we all follow your work and, and kind of get in touch? Because we'll want to know all the answers, please. Sure. <laughs> well, like I said, I, we're, we're not out to prove anything or find answers, but if you're curious and you want to learn, uh, my personal <laughs> website is www.voicescientist.com. And that's sort of my landing page. There's not a lot of information on there, but some some basic info about me. And there are links to my, my faculty page, my lab website. So you can follow those. You can contact me. Uh, Aaron at voicescientist.com, or you can find me at, at NYU. Uh, Aaron.Johnson at nyulangone.org. I'm always happy to get emails and inquiries from people. 
Um, I, I run a vocology education program as well through NYU School for Professional Studies. So if the, the podcast today has piqued your interest and you're looking for other opportunities to, to learn about the voice, then I would encourage you to, to check that out, the Vocology Continuing Education Certificate Program at the School for Professional Studies at NYU. Um, and I'm active with the Pan American Vocology Association, former president of that organization, uh, NATS, and uh, American Speech Language Hearing Association. So lots of ways to, to get in touch with me, to find me. And I always love talking about the voice and meeting people who are eager to, to continue learning. Yeah. How the heck do you fit all that in? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> One thing at a time. That's just, yeah. that's all you can do. <laughs> Right now, I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron, and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. You as well. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a... Ahem, five star rating and leaving a comment just head to the singing teachers talk main page on the apple podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click write a review